folks. Welcome to On the Tape with Dan Nathan, Danny Moses. I'm Guy Adami. Listen, folks, normally we talk about Apple earnings. We talk about what's going on in big tech. We talk about a number of different things. But you know what? It's all bullshit because what's dominating local news, business news, national news, and you know what? Global news is this phenomenon we're seeing in one stock in particular, and that's GameStop. It's the little guy versus the big guy. It's David versus Goliath. It's all those things that you've read about that are coming to fruition in real time in the stock market. People that have never heard of stocks before are talking about it, and it's fascinating. I know Danny Moses has some thoughts. I know Dan Nathan has some thoughts. Later on, we're going to go off the tape with Stephanie Rule, MSNBC host and NBC tech and business reporter. But first off, Danny Moses, what is going on here? It's really appropriate that the stock happens to be GameStop, which sells video games, because that really feels like what, what we've been living in here. And I think of barbarians at the gate, but I like to think about what's going to be called bag holders at the gate. If somebody wants to write that book, maybe we'll get Michael Lewis to write, you know, to write that one. But this, um, not to say you could see it coming, because I don't think we, thought we saw this extreme, but we've talked about this before. In our first two episodes, we talked about Robinhood. We talked about what is the downside of giving the, quote, common investor access to the market to trade options. What qualifies you to trade options? I mean, you go on Robinhood, you can fill out an application. They'll give you options. And the more options that you trade with them, the more access that you get. I'm sure that's not going to end well either. So I have no problem with retail investors making money at the expense of institutions at all. I just think we are now seeing the combination of market structure inefficiencies, the ability of these high-frequency traders to purchase this retail flow. That's one thing. We're seeing leverage in the system from these hedge funds and institutions where they're actually getting margin called and they can't believe what's actually happening. They're crying foul. And what happens? They change the rules today and they put in a long ban. I mean, I've never seen anything like that before. So I got pretty angry at that. And I would, I would probably be one if I was running a hedge fund right now that would have definitely been caught in one of these stocks. So it's more than one hedge fund. It's a lot of hedge funds. And you know what? These banks are on the hook, right? They're margin calling these funds, their clients, and they're going to lose money also. So Guy, to your point, you know, now you have senators that are clamoring for a um, hearing and, and I, that's going to be really fun. It's pretty interesting that, you know, this movement obviously was born from the deep, dark reaches of the internet off of the Wall Street Bets Reddit account. Obviously, it's been fueled by some fancy billionaires uh, who are deemed to be influencers on Twitter, on CNBC. Um, they think that this is a movement here. They think they're putting power back in the hands of the, let's say, the small investors who've not been able to participate, let's say, in some of the risk asset appreciation over the last 10 years. It obviously has a lot to do with, I think, some of the monetary policy that's gone on since the global financial crisis 10, 11 years ago. I do think it's interesting, as you guys mentioned, GameStop, their logo is power to the players. You know, that is kind of the mantra, I think, that's going on here. But I think it'd be a big misnomer to think that this is just a bunch of anonymous financial anarchists on the Internet that have drawn these kind of you know gains in these stocks. And they're really kind of targeting these hedge funds that they know that have short interest or have all the short interest in a way. I think there's been a great deal of collusion by a lot of different players. Obviously, I can't prove that, but this is not a court of law and I don't need to prove anything. And I'm not leveling that on any specific group. But one thing is clear. If you go look at these Reddits and all these geniuses going on CNBC and such, you know, saying, well, I've been spending hours in the Reddits. 
there's a bunch of bots in there. They're all anonymous. Who the hell knows what's doing this? It could be R- Russian hack farms for all we know. But we also know that financial institutions that benefit from this sort of momentum are obviously playing this. So I think at the end of the day, you know, you're going to see a lot of retail investors uh, via Robinhood or whatever holding the bag and holding some very substantial losses in a small amount of names. And you're going to see a lot of financial institutions probably did just well by this activity over the last week. I agree with you, Dan. I, it's fascinating to me to think that this is just a retail uprising, I think is foolish. There's clearly something else at work here. And you wonder if this, remember the Vin Diesel, Ben Affleck movie, you wonder if this is Boiler Room 3.0, like what's behind this? And are these guys and gals just pawns in a much bigger situation? Listen, they're going to make money along the way as well. A lot are going to lose money, but who's really behind this? Who's driving it? And then Danny Moses, my question to you is Robin Hood was supposed, it was set up to democratize trading, democratize, level the playing field. And people lined up and they loved the Robinhood app. And then during the week we saw it, Robinhood changed the rules midstream and it really pissed a lot of people off. What do you think is really behind that? Because I got to tell you, Robinhood has to know what they did there in terms of their client base. There must be, again, greater forces at work here. Why don't we connect the dots here? So we don't know all the facts yet. This is complete speculation. Some of it's facts, but some of it's speculation and how it went down. But a couple of things. Robinhood was all set to go public during the next couple months, okay, at a $20 billion valuation. The banker was Goldman Sachs, okay, that's one thing. Two, some private equity funds own Robinhood. That's another point. Third, Citadel buys all the order flow. All this retail order flow goes into their system. Citadel controls 46% of all retail order flow and 27% of all flows. So that right there is a whole issue that should be examined, in my opinion. Why did Citadel give $2 billion to Melvin Capital. So for those that don't know, Melvin Capital has kind of been the poster child of this move, $12.5 billion fund, great successes of the last several years. Steve Cohen was an original investor. But why did Citadel come in? They came in because, one, Melvin Capital was very levered and would have literally had to shut their doors. Goldman Sachs, among other banks, whoever, I'm not sure if Goldman Sachs is actually their broker, but someone else was on the hook. But more importantly, I think Citadel itself was potentially on the hook because we all know that we, we make fun of, of retail investors that are kind of clubbing together. We know that hedge funds talk and we know that hedge funds share information in a legal way, but they're all kind of expressing the same trade. They come to the same conclusion a lot. They were all in these same stocks. Those six stocks that were named today for a particular reason for a long band, BlackBerry, the Bed Bath & Beyond and Cost Nokia, GameStop and AMC, there's a reason that those six were there. What was that? So Guy, to your point, I can't tell you exactly the reason, but all of a sudden, the big institution said, hold on a second. We're starting to lose a lot of money. Now we're at risk. So maybe the story never comes out. And in the end, we know who the winner's going to be. It's the institutions. But that's what I think's happened. So I think we have a, a long way to go here until we figure this out. There are many chapters left without question. And again, you know, it all comes down to leverage and all those things. But Dan, Nathan, I mean, to me, this is, this is Occupy Wall Street 5.0. Am I way off base there? Or is there something to that? It just seems like a lot of people said, you know what, I'm done with establishment. I can do this for myself. And guess what? I'm empowered by these groups of people, like-minded people that are around me. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. But they're just gambling. I mean, there's nothing more to it. You know, Chamath Palihapitiya, who's a genius investor, you know, the CEO, founder of Social Capital. He's launched a bunch of SPACs. He's bought a lot of really interesting companies. He was on Scott Wapner's show, uh, The Halftime Report, on Wednesday, you know, really talking about what you're saying, that this is a movement, that this is something to kind of take back the power. It's, it's, a, it's a play to kind of narrow the income inequality gap. And I, I don't 
disagree with that. I think there's better ways to do it. I don't think gambling on a free iPhone app using leverage is the way to do it. And it's really, you know, listen, have they been proved correctly in the last year? Yeah, this was a year where people were forced not to work, to be at home. There were no sports to bet on. They had money put into their bank accounts. They could go into the app store and download a free app and there was no charge to playing. So to, you know, power to the players, right? And then when you see things like, you know, Tesla double its market cap going from 400 billion to 800 billion, obviously that was a huge, huge short squeeze, but retail had a big part of that. I just think that we are in a euphoric stage right now on multiple asset classes. It is a very, very unique time. You know, to see this sort of price action in this group of names, it just won't end particularly well. We know that calling the top is a useful endeavor, but you know, as I'm looking here, as we're talking right before the close on Thursday, Elon Musk just tweets this out. Here come the shorty apologists. Give them no respect. Get shorty. You know, these people on Reddit, these people who don't know what, I don't believe they know what they're doing, guy. And I know, you know, at me, whatever, I don't care. I have you guys muted if you don't follow me, that sort of thing. They don't know what they're doing and they are getting egged on by the richest man in the world. This is a culmination of not just quantitative easing, but things like like we said last week, when it's this easy to make money, be very careful. This is a culmination of all of that. And, and so no one should be surprised by most of this. Some of this, yes, is new to everybody, but it, I'm, I'm not shocked. Right. So it's interesting. So what I said before, Dan Nathan, is if you remember the movie Boiler Room, which I'm sure you do, by the way, Ben Affleck crushed that movie. In the four minutes he was in it, he dominated that movie. But the pawns in that movie were the brokers. The guys that were really getting rich were the guys that were running the Boiler Room. In this instance, it's my belief that the pawns or all the people on these platforms, the Reddit people, and the ones that are getting rich are people that we don't even have established or identified yet because there's greater forces at work here. And that's going to be for another podcast when we start to connect the dots in a real way. But Danny Moses, I know on during the week you were trading and something happened to you that shouldn't happen to anybody. And it happened on one of your platforms that you trade off of. Yeah, I was trading on Schwab and the system was down basically from 930 to 10. Why would you need even to trade from 930 to 10? Nothing goes on then, right? And I had limit orders in and I couldn't change them. So stocks were either going up or not to disclose my positions, but you can imagine I probably had puts on certain things. And none of these six stocks, by the way. And I couldn't change them when the market was rallying. And you know, I filmed it. I took pictures of it. I tried to get them on the phone. None of these systems are set up for this, for this type of flow, for this type of volume. And that just tells you, again, there's a market structure issue. What IEX has tried to do on the institutional side is make it fair trading for everyone and to cut this crap out, right? And to get all this. And that has happened slowly, but not quickly enough. And again, I think of Hunt for Red October. And I think of this Russian commander on that third submarine where he blew himself up, where the captain turns to the commander and says, you just killed us, you arrogant ass. That to me is potentially someone like a Citadel who was feasting on this order flow, feasting on retail. And then all of a sudden, when it went against them, potentially on the other side of their book, oh, hold on a second. No more trading in this. We will not even make a market for you anymore in this. So stop it. I mean, who is pulling the levers here and what's going on? Who's the puppeteer and who's the puppet? And that's what we're going to find out. Yeah, we're going to find out. By the way, that is a great movie. I got to tell you, Fred Thompson, I think he was a senator from the great state of Tennessee. Fantastic in that movie. And I got it. I'm a huge Alec Baldwin guy. I thought he crushed it as well. And Sean, I mean, Sean Connery, I don't give a shit what his accent was. He was the man. You know in that what? Movie. This whole market is crazy, Ivan. 
Yeah, Who's doing that's the crazy right. Well, Ivan I was going right to now. just say, the market's doing a crazy Ivan. You took the words right out of my mouth to quote Meatloaf. And you know who is really behind all this? And I know Dan Nathan's going to at my ass in a second. But it's the Federal Reserve. And you'd be like, oh, you're out of your mind, guy. How is it the Federal Reserve? Because for 12 years, price discovery is a thing of the past. They flooded the system with liquidity. They've led to this situation where the market believes there is no downside. There is no risk whatsoever. They, they feel powerful in a situation where they should be powerless. And that's all at the feet of the Federal Reserve and their zero interest rate policy. Hey, guy, guess who works at Citadel? Ben Bernanke. Ben Bernanke works at Citadel. First job he took. And it's interesting you mention that because I said this on the show and I've written about it and I'll say it here on this podcast. I'm all for capitalism. Do whatever you want. But you should not be allowed to go from that platform of the Federal Reserve with the biggest prop trade in the history of mankind, leave it midstream, and then go to a place that's going to take advantage of the absolute knowledge that you have. And Ben Bernanke, I mean, what is what good is he to Citadel other than the secrets or the things he knows about the Fed's balance sheet? I ask you that, Danny Moses. Well, I will tell you this, and I, we all have war stories on the short side, but he was presiding over the short man, Bernanke, when he was running the Federal Reserve, and that was the Treasury and Washington and everybody getting involved. But we're going to have our guest on later, Stephanie Rule, who was our credit salesperson at the time covering us. And I was turned to Porter Collins on September 18th, 2008. We looked at each other. It was a short band coming across. So we can handle that, right? You can something called boxing your trade where you don't have to cover your short. You can technically go long and keep it on so that if you don't have to worry about getting your short back on. I won't go into that technically, but a long band, that's unheard of. So this is not going to end well. And I mean, Dan, you probably have some great short stories from before, but I've been there. I've been on the side of this in a different form. Doesn't matter what it is. If you get squeezed, you get squeezed. Yeah, I've been on the wrong side of this, you know, at a hedge fund back in 2003. My fund, which probably had a billion under management, we were obviously using leverage, maybe two to one. Um, we were probably not running massive net um, exposures, but we lost $100 million short of stock. Uh, BlackBerry, actually, when it used to be ticker RIM, the stock gapped up on December 22nd. Go look at the chart, kids. It closed up 100% on the day. We obviously got that story wrong and it continued to go up for months and months, actually for years and years, but we covered that short pretty quickly. And I think it's important to remember that, you know, because that happened late in the year, we had some really huge gains already on the year. We still closed up on the year. It didn't put us out of business. It was very poor risk management, a lot of very poor trading. I think that there's a lot of stories like that that people have never even kind of heard of before, and they don't capture the sort of attention that these stories are catching right now because they're just not concentrated, broad market stories. But what happened in that situation, I think it's really important to remember, is everybody on the street, there was no Reddit, there was not even the, the Yahoo and AOL message boards. They didn't really matter back then. Everybody in the street knew that we were the short interest. And once that stock started going higher, everybody started playing. So there's just no, there's no, this is not uh, show friends, right? This is show business. Everyone knew there was a great opportunity to get shorty here. Let's not kid ourselves. Every other hedge fund out there, smelled blood in the water with the Melvin Capitals of the world. They know every one of their positions. That's exactly where I was going, right? So you can blame it on the Redditors. You can blame it on Wall Street bets. But, you know, at the end of the day, there's very sophisticated investors. Now there's these algos. They were going for it. There was blood in the water and they went for it. And so that's what's happened here. I think to place too much emphasis on this Reddit army is an absolute waste of time. You're giving them way too much credit, guy. I don't think there's any of them who know anything about convexity and that sort of thing. All they know is that stocks have been going up since they entered the stock market, that it's easy to play on their iPhone app. And again, I think it's really important to remember, okay, 
Robinhood was created by a bunch of developers that used to work at Facebook, at Google, at Electronic Arts, the most addictive applications that you have on your iPhone. So this is not about investing. This is not about a better financial future. This is not about closing an income inequality gap. This is about like financial nihilism, in my opinion. I think you're right. I think there's somebody, the puppeteer is out there. I just don't know who the puppeteer or the puppeteers are, but there's somebody clearly behind this because to your point, Dan, it just can't be the Redditors. And maybe I am giving them too much credit, but I will tell you categorically that somebody out there understands vol and how to take advantage of taking advantage of derivatives books that are levered in a meaningful way. And maybe this just is boiler room. 5.0, and maybe we're in a new market, and maybe, listen, maybe short selling is going to go away because maybe the guys out there from the Citrons, and we had Jim Chanos on last week, and maybe the gamification of the stock market that we talked about on our first episode is such that you can't make money doing that anymore. But I will say this, I think short sellers are vital importance because those are the guys and gals that bring to light maybe some of the flaws in the system, and maybe they bring to light a Lehman Brothers or stocks like an Enron that but for them, nobody would ever recognize, Danny. We always talk, leverage kills everything. So leverage is always the root of the problem at the end of the day. If you're not levered and you lose money, okay, it doesn't have that compounding effect. When Lehman and Bear Stearns basically went out of business, they were holding assets. They were a bank, and all of Wall Street knew exactly what they had. They had these subprime bonds sitting there. So if you were housing your assets at Bear Stearns and Lehman, what did you do? You went out and bought put options on Bear Stearns and Lehman to protect yourself so that if they went under, you could recoup some of what you can't get out of the bank. I don't want to get too technical, but there is a nuance here to all this. I believe that some of the call option buying was potentially the lenders, the banks themselves that were lending these hedge funds that knew that these funds were in trouble and needed to cut their risk off also because the banks are all levered to a degree, right? They don't want to report a loss in these days, especially with the new administration in Washington. So they may be out there buying and it just fed on itself and is continuing to feed on itself. So like you said, puppet, puppeteer, at the end of the day, it feels like everyone's going to lose. I'm sure there's some sharks out there that are winning here that are being nimble and smart, but this is not going to be a good look at the, at the end of the day. And we're going to get regulation. We'll get something's going to happen that shouldn't because of this. It's kind of interesting. This was a week that we had a Fed meeting. Um, Jerome Powell was actually asked about GameStop. They were asked about inflating risk asset bubbles. You know, in a lot of ways, I think we're going to look back and say that he was kind of whistling past the graveyard. This is clearly a moment, I think, that regulators are certainly paying attention. We know that there's going to be hearings in the Senate. There's going to be hearings in the House. There's going to be regulation placed on these online trading platforms. At the end of the day, I think you may find the culprits of the financial financial crisis 10, 11, 12 years ago, probably end up coming out pretty clean in this situation, which would be a great deal of irony here. But Guy, just wrap us up on the Fed because we didn't hit that. I know we touched on it a little bit. We didn't hit the fact that, you know, Jerome Powell was just kind of playing footsie with what was going on in the backdrop here. But it's proving to be a fairly significant week, I think. And we'll probably look back on this one and say that was it. Oh, we're going to talk about this for weeks, months, if not years to come without question. And I know the people that watch Fast Money and read some of the stuff that I put out there understand that I am no fan of the Federal Reserve. I've said it before. I've written about it. I'll say it here. I think some of the biggest villains amongst many in the 21st century are going to be central bankers, specifically Fed officials, because they're fueling so many different things. History is littered with disastrous outcomes born of good intentions. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing here in terms of Fed policy for the last dozen years. And oh, by the way, 
going back to Chairman Greenspan when he brilliantly said, wait a second, I can sort of alchemy out the recession part of the business cycle. And that was a mistake then, and it's a mistake now. And the free money floating around and people seemingly impervious to risk based on that, you see what's happening in the volatility index. We've seen now on three different occasions, on rather benign market days, the VIX goes from 21 to 30. And this past week, we saw the VIX go from 21 to 40 on what was relatively benign market day, albeit down 650 or so Dow points. So I am frightened. I am scared. I think this all lies at the foot of the Federal Reserve. I think people are pissed off. I know I'm pissed off, Danny Moses. So again, (laughs) you talked about it in our first podcast, gamification. Well, folks, you're seeing it firsthand, Danny. And I would say that the Fed wasn't even, there's so much going on. The Fed wasn't on front page news at all. And they had a meeting yesterday, dovish as ever, continue with QE, do all those things. Okay, check the box. Great. And we're so far away from the Fed changing course. So that's not a trading call at all, but it just goes to show you how built in and insidious it is and people taking risk and the moral hazard that comes as a result of it. They're always going to be there for you. So it doesn't matter if it was home prices or homes or GameStop, whatever. Retail investors will find an asset because it's the cool thing to do and then be left holding the bag. And that's exactly what's going to happen here. I know Dan Nathan's going to boomer me on Twitter, but Dan, close us out here. I've said this for years, that everybody has hobbies. Those hobbies cost money, right? And you allocate a certain amount of capital to partake in that hobby. If trading's your hobby, whether it be stocks, whether it be options, whether it be crypto, whether it be homes, whatever the heck it is, right? Know what you're willing to lose, right? And budget that uh, accordingly, because I think what's going on here is not hobby. It's outright gambling. And so I think it's a bit dangerous. And I just, you know, I fear that I see the anger among this Reddit crowd and it's not going to end well for them. And they're only going to be more angry and it's only going to keep them out of the markets and out of investing and really what they should be focused on for the long term. If it's just a hobby and you're gambling your $600 check that you got from the government, have at it, as I would say, but be careful on leverage and be careful of not overextending yourself. Yeah. To quote one of our guests, Sahil Bloom, who said, you know, talked about Dunning-Kruger, there might as well be a, a stock Dunning-Kruger at this point. It might as well have also been a, a long ban on it because that's exactly what happened to all these. As the great Don Corleone said, Tatalia's a pimp. He could never have outfought Santino. Our true enemy is yet to show his or her face. And that's what's going on here. And yeah, I'm pissed off. And listen, when we come back, we're going to have Stephanie Rule going off the tape uh, in just a minute. Stay with us, folks. Welcome back to On the Tape with Danny Moses. Dan Nathan, I'm Guy Adami. We're going off the tape now, and we're going off the tape with Stephanie Rule. You guys and gals know her. She anchors MSNBC Live with, of course, Stephanie Rule, weekdays at 9 a.m. Stephanie also appears across all NBC News and MSNBC platforms as NBC News Senior Business Correspondent. She's also the host of the podcast, I love this one, Modern Rules, not R-U-L-E-S, R-U-H-L-E-S. Compelling conversations during culturally complicated times. Prior to her years as a host on Bloomberg, Stephanie worked at Deutsche Bank, serving as the managing director in global markets, senior relationship management, and began her storied career at Credit Suisse, not Swiss, where she was a star credit derivatives salesperson. Stephanie, welcome to On the Tape. Thank you so much. I could listen to that all day long. I can keep going. Actually, I could keep going because it's an amazing resume. It's an incredible bio. And we're so appreciative of you coming. Listen, I know this firsthand. Over the last 48 hours, just about anybody that's ever been associated with the stock market 
has been called to talk about one thing, and that's this situation with GameStop. I was on WFAN, the sports talk radio show. I saw you on the Today Show the other day. Everybody's talking about it. Stephanie, I don't need the machinations of this thing, but what does it all mean? I can tell you trying to explain short selling on the Today Show was impossible. It was very stressful for me. But what does this mean? To me, this is the most extraordinary story because, yes, it's a market story, but this is a cultural story. The same spirit that got all of those $10 donations piling up and up and up that, that brought Bernie Sanders to the center of establishment politics and the same spirit that pulled together individuals and special interest groups to form massive movements around social justice, racial justice, same exact spirit is what we are seeing here in that sort of rage against the system, next generation, I don't want to be part of the establishment. You've got that spirit combined with what happened over the last year. People are home, right? People are home. They're in front of screens. Think about especially young people. They've got adrenaline. They've got energy. They're not spending any money on going out to eat, going to bars, going to chase girls, going to sporting events, going on trips. So they do have some disposable income. And I do love the idea of the democratization of investing because we all know it's not easy to invest. It's intimidating. It's overwhelming. If you didn't grow up with a father that was going over the Wall Street Journal with you, people never know how to get in. And so you've got apps like Robinhood that do look like mobile app games, which are dangerous. And it's brought people in, which, listen, that's a huge positive. Now, it's interesting you say that. Now, real quick, because I want to hear some more thoughts on this. I just want to sort of push back quickly and say, I'm all about the democratization. I agree. And one of the things I tweeted yesterday is, I think these Robin Hood traders and these Wall Street bets guys and gals, they know more about convexity and derivatives and volatility than people are supposed to be doing it for a living. And they used it to their advantage in this situation. What's wrong with that? I'm not saying there's anything. I, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm not saying they, they did anything wrong. good for them for getting educated, for getting involved, because the truth is the system is designed for the big guys. When Airbnb does an IPO and my mother wants to buy shares because she knows all about Airbnb, she's never going to get any. By the time she can get Airbnb shares, it's when rich guys are selling it. When you think about how the business is structured, absolutely, it is structured for the establishment. However, however, it's not like we've seen in mass this Robin Hood trading universe finally get their chance at bat and come up with this unbelievable trading strategy. I would love it if we did. What's twisted here is their choice. They have now gone extraordinarily massively long failing companies, which is totally reminiscent of 1999 when everybody and their brother was all jacked up and buying every stock with a dot-com at the end. And that ended horribly. And this whole idea that like David is slaying Goliath, Goliath being the horrible hedge fund, well, you better check Goliath's pulse because we all know, because we've been around long enough, Goliath doesn't die that easily. And everyone who's going, they're going to get Robin Hood. They're going to get Citadel. They're going to get Steve Cohen. You don't think Ken Griffin is the most Machiavellian of characters out there? His dogs probably have lawyers. At the end of this, when there is blood, when people have lost money, when young people who bet money they shouldn't have and they're pointing fingers and calling fraud, we're going to be right back where all of us were in 2008. 
and everyone is going to be outraged at the big guys and the banks and how did the little guy get screwed and why didn't the bankers go to jail? The bankers didn't go to jail after the subprime crisis because they didn't technically break the law. And we're going to see that same thing happen here. So for me, when I'm watching, whether it's Ted Cruz or AOC, say this is reprehensible. Why is this happening? They need to get a big old mirror. Why do all of these things happen? Because they're allowed to happen. Hate the game, not the player. You don't want to allow short sellers to exist? Ban short selling. Why isn't Robinhood allowing a lot of these trades to go on today? Because they can't clear them. And if you can't clear trades, you will go out of business today. But nobody wants to hear the the back office machinations of this, but that's how these things occur. I totally agree with you. We've talked about the gamification. You even use the word bet money on stocks, whether you meant to or not. That's exactly what I think is going on. People have a DraftKings account. They have a Coinbase and Robinhood. We actually said on our last episode that Robinhood was stealing from the poor and giving to the rich. And I don't think people understand that whole side of it. But one thing that's really interesting, when you and I kind of worked together, when you were covering us from Deutsche Bank, was during the short ban. And I remember turning to Porter Collins on my right and saying, looking at him in the face, I go, all right. So we did things like box these trades, which I won't go into here. But what's amazing about this is I've never seen a long ban. For Robinhood to use the phrase, quote, help our customers navigate this uncertainty, that's bringing a knife to a gunfight, first of all. And you're 100% right. This is a circular thing where the institutions will end up still on top. And who do, you th- who do we think called Robinhood? And said, hey, guys, you think it was Goldman Sachs? Uh, guys, we're trying to do an IPO in the first quarter with you guys. We're not going to give you any institutional ownership if uh, this keeps going on. And here's Ken Griffin coming to save the world by bailing out Melvin Capital, right? I'd love to get your thoughts on that. He wasn't bailing. He was bailing, he was bailing himself out. He's loan sharking. He's bailing himself out. But also at the end of this, Melvin Capital, the founder, after the, before this, has a very good track record. And so once we all get through this and Ken Griffin saves himself and survives, he's then going to own a big chunk of this guy for the rest of his life. I'm just saying there's no crying in baseball, okay? You cannot bring money. Everything you invest has to be discretion. Like, I don't believe there are any victims in trading. And I will go so far as to say, I don't even think uh, a Madoff people were victims. A victim is someone who gets hit by a car. A victim is somebody who gets their wallet stolen. If you choose to invest in something, you are taking a risk, a risk that you better be prepared to take. Well, it comes down to regulation. I'll turn it over to Dan. But at the same time, Madoff, no one was monitoring him sending out those statements. So to the average person that thought they had X amount of money, it was hard for them to discern anything different. Yes, they could have understood there's no way those options were really trading in the marketplace. No one can sell calls that size back back at the time. But I think you and I both agree that we'll get overregulation as a result of this if we get anything. Something will happen where the, you know, there'll be new tick rules that come in on, on the on the short side. There'll be new tick rules on the long side. I don't know what'll happen, but it always ends up with going too far to the other side. We're gonna get new regulation, but big guys aren't going to get in trouble and people will be furious. You know, it's interesting, Steph. I think the most interesting aspect of this story, and and I think that we're going to be looking back on this as just a kind of a footnote in, in a long history of kind of financial malfeasance, if you will. I'm not saying there's fraud. There's definitely been a whole heck of a lot of collusion. But the psychology around this Wall Street bets Reddit thing is really fascinating to me. You know, predominantly anonymous, and they seem angry, and they're angry about the financial crisis. They're angry about their parents' houses getting foreclosed on. Um, they're, they're angry about a lot of stuff. And then they're being egged on 
by a bunch of billionaire influencers on social media, on CNBC, that sort of thing. And there's this sort of like kind of burn the ships aspect to, to it, I think, which I think is really kind of interesting. And then there's this kind of burn it all down. And I, I, I get the anger. I get the Occupy Wall Street was kind of this thing that came out of the global financial crisis. I just see this as very different. I see it as kind of a weaponization of disinformation. I see it as a very vengeful sort of thing. And I don't think it's the proper foundation to kind of really institute some major change. And I just kind of want to get your take on that because I I agree with you that I don't really see victims here, especially people knowingly getting into this and knowing, you know, there's people in Reddit saying, we'll lose all our money. We just want to be right and we want to take down the hedge funds. That's just no way to kind of institute real change. Correct. And the thing that's, uh, that's sad, honestly, are the likes of Elon Musk, right? Like Elon Musk is cool if the system gets burned down. He is a provocateur. He loves the adrenaline rush of this. He's an antagonist to regulators. We know that. We saw that two years ago. You know, earlier this week, I kind of like Etsy. And then he gets to watch the stock run. I get it. His adrenaline rushes. He giggles. He laughs. And he's their champion. But when things go sour, he can pop that new baby of his R2-D2, get in his rocket ship, and go to Mars, literally. And these, and these kids will have spent their stimulus checks um, and lost them. And don't you know, Mitch McConnell, in days, that's going to be the next story of like, do we really need these direct payments? People were doing some unsavory things with them. And you're like, oh, my God, I can feel what the next story is. Well, it's funny. So the next story, you guys just kind of touched on the regulation. And, you know, at the end of the day, don't you think that when it's all said and done, it's going to be the banks, it's going to be the brokers, it's going to be the high frequency traders. And then ultimately, the securities lawyers are the ones who are going to win no matter what happens here. They always do. Yeah. Well, isn't that going to be the sad truth? Because we know that GameStop is going to go back down to somewhere where it was trading, let's say, a week or two ago. And so does that just kind of make the case for this? Would would you call it a movement? Is it a movement? And who wins, in your opinion? It is a movement because we have never, ever seen individuals disrupt the financial system like this. We've never seen it, right? It's absolutely a movement. And we've never seen a movement like this where people don't want to be part of that infrastructure. And I think that's exciting. But I think you brought the best point up, like lawyers are going to win. Lawyers won Trump impeachment. Lawyers won the Trump presidency. They win every time. That's going to be the case again. I, I do find it interesting, not that there would be regulators today coming down on anything, but in the world of a perfect storm, this is happening when we are sort of between administrations. We don't have the new SEC chair confirmed. But I think Gary Gensler, unlike other people in that role, is going to be hugely impactful because he actually understands the business so well. Right. One of the biggest problems with regulation is those who are regulating don't understand the the subject matter. Gary definitely does. Steph, you know who the happiest person is that all this is going on is Leon Black, because if his PR people could have put this out (laughs) Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, just to like break. Because here's another person. Another Wall Street figurehead. I'm convinced he's the buyer of most of this stuff. Right, like, exactly. He's like, how do I, how do I change the subject? <laughs> what bomb can I go off? But here, here we are again. Is that story going to go away? I mean, you know that like some of the companies that Apollo was financing, some of those companies are saying, well, maybe they don't want you to finance us now. But that story is just incredible in the sense of there's just no way. It's an incredible story. There's absolutely no way we know what what really happened. But the truth is, I don't know that we're going to get much more out of it. You're not going to have, 
right? Leon Black isn't a regular flavored CEO where you're not going to have employees walk out. You know, Apollo doesn't have a mission statement or a brand. And for portfolio companies or investors, they do want to kind of look the other way if they can help it. If they really thought they were going to lose business here, they would have forced Leon out. But in the brutal battle royale between Josh Harris, Mark Rohn, and Leon Black duking it out, I'm sure Leon Black secured that they weren't going to lose a ton of business. To, to me, what the most incredible part about this story is, is hubris. Leon Black could have left a year ago. Leon Black knew how much money he paid him. He knew, he knew. however ugly this story is, he knows how ugly it is. And if he left one year ago, there'd be a kind of ugly story out there, but it wouldn't be the problem of his employees, his investors, his shareholders. Now it's everyone's problem and everyone is talking about it. And if anything else does come out, he will have to step down as chair. Now, everyone who's going, what about when the women come out? I don't actually think there's necessarily going to be. If people are, are naughty, that's one thing. That doesn't necessarily mean they're criminals. And it doesn't mean that women are going to come forward, right? There's a very good chance that, that Jeffrey Epstein created an enormous side game for a whole lot of very, very successful men who couldn't take their side hustles to restaurants and bars and hotels and, and, and out. And they had Jeffrey Epstein, where they could use his six houses and six islands and his planes and helicopters and didn't have to put anybody's name down. For guys who are multi-multi-billionaires, they'd be willing to pay a few million dollars for that. However, they would not be willing to pay $150 million for that. And that why on earth would he have paid that much? And what I don't get is, if Jeffrey Epstein was truly a tax strategy aficionado, okay, aficionado in ways that I cannot even understand, if he was, why wouldn't Leon Black just come clean and say it? As an army of one, too. As an army of one, he was able to figure out a $2 billion tax savings. Right. But if you're Leon Black, just say it. That's far less humiliating. What That leaves you with the brand of you're super, super greedy and you look for every loophole so you don't have to pay taxes. I think he'd be cool with that. Wouldn't he much rather that than where he is right now? And that just leaves this huge open question and makes you wonder... What is it with, with most, with some of these extraordinarily powerful, powerful people, what do you see in them? That they have no peace because they can't bear to be out of the game. So Steph, before you were talking about all the great movements, and I got to tell you, at 57 years old, there's nothing like a great movement for me, number one. Number two, you also mentioned that the lawyers always win, and that's like a Don Henley song, but you also mentioned hubris. And this is what my next question is, like the divide in this country between the wealthy and the poor, in my opinion, has never been greater. For 40 million or more people in this country, it's flat out 1930s. Yet, stock markets at all-time highs. People, or Some of the people are doing better than they've ever done in their lives. I think a lot of this lies at the foot of the Federal Reserve. That's just my opinion. But how do we fix it? I mean, how do we fix this, in your opinion? It's 100% with the Fed. You keep rates at zero. You pump money into the system. It is the greatest thing ever for asset holders. Your house is worth more, stocks are worth more, you know, let's keep partying. And you've got 50 million people that are food insecure. I mean, even when we get to the other side of COVID and people get jobs back, what are the jobs they're getting? I actually think, well, two things. People who are on the, the quote unquote winning side of this trade, what I don't understand 
in terms of them not being interest in creating a more equitable country, it makes our country worse. It's not just morally sound to do it. It's economically sound. I don't want to live in a third world country where I can live in a really nice house with a, with a giant gate around it. And there's people dying in the streets. That's where we will head. I don't want to go there. And I don't think any of us do. So it's baffling to me when people don't want to improve the plight for all Americans morally, but economically, why wouldn't they want it? And my, when you say, what could we do? And maybe I'm being so naive and romantic. However, I think Biden has a chance of being a transformational president because in this moment of crisis where maybe you could get both parties on the same page, I'd love to see a massive jobs program, a massive skills retraining program. So we're not debating, should we raise minimum wage to $15 because people who work at fast food restaurants can't afford to support their families? I don't want people with families to have a job working in a fast food restaurant. What I would love to see is more is new skills retraining because before COVID happened, we had a huge skills gap in this country. We had millions of open jobs and we didn't have people to fill them because people didn't have the skills. So step one, let's have a jobs program. Let's have, let's have a skills program. And step two, you're dealing with all this student debt issue. Let's actually create real vocational training programs in this country. Let's actually create real two-year programs because right now, and for all of our childhood and adult lives in the United States, it was shameful to not send your kids to college, right? Your kids have to go to college. Otherwise, what are they, a loser? And that sends millions of young kids who are probably not college, shouldn't be college-bound, going to for-profit, not-so-hot schools, taking them six years to graduate, hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt to graduate with a communications degree and a job they'll never find and no passion. Take those same young people and have actual real training programs, right? I ask any of you, how much would you, when you or your spouse is looking for, for a custom woodworker, for a contractor, for an electrician, for a great plumber, A, you can't find them. B, they cost a zillion dollars. And C, none of them are under the age of 60 because they don't exist anymore. Bring those things back with pride. That's how you're going to recreate some, some equality. It's funny, you know, that seems like very much about Biden's populist message. And you mentioned that, you know, he has the ability to be transformational. And I just wonder... I think that's populist. I'm not saying college should be free. No, no, no. What, what I mean is the, the skills training and, and bringing those jobs back. You, you could make the but argument... But I don't think that, it's populist. I want that because I, I don't want to pay people more money for a job that shouldn't be paid that. I don't want people to just get paid for, for not improving their plight. I don't want to pay kids to go to college for free because I can assure you, if, you go to college, if I was going to college for free, I would never go to class. My father used to call me on the phone during class because he knew my schedule and would say $950 and then hang up because that's what it would cost per class that I missed. If it was totally free, I never would have walked into class. So I don't think we should just make it free and make it easy. We should give more options because when someone has a job that they believe in, they have pride and that will change the game. Yeah, no, I don't I don't disagree with any of that. And, and you know, to me, I, I just think that when I hear the word transformational presidency, you know, I think back to the start of the Obama presidency in early 2009 and, and it was kind of 
famously reported that he got all the banking CEOs together in a room and said, listen, I'm the only thing here between you and the pitchforks, right? And so when I think about skills training and I think about some of these accelerated sort of trends that we saw with technology, I think about these major technology companies here in the US, um, you know who they are. It's Apple, it's Microsoft, it's Alphabet, it's Facebook and Amazon. I, I mean, I almost feel like that Biden's going to have to have a conversation with those CEOs. And he's going to say that the only way that we come out of this on the other end of this pandemic and we don't further exasperate this income inequality, when you think about all of the stimulus and all the relief that's kind of being pumped into our economy, and I know that you feel this way, that that little guy has been left behind. And it kind of ties into a little bit what we're talking about with this movement in the financial markets right now. And, and I believe this is just going to be a blip. But my question to you is that what what is is there a, the potential for a public private partnership and should these tech companies be involved with bringing these workers bridging that gap in the skills gap yes yes and yes listen i think those tech companies i don't know why they're not stepping up to help deliver vaccines like i i don't know how jeff bezos isn't doing that right now and i don't know why jeff joe biden isn't calling upon him to do that right if you want to start to address this rage against the super wealthy well, then let's see the super wealthy do more than just give philanthropic dollars. Let's see them do things to truly make our country and our population stronger and better. He absolutely should tap those tech CEOs. We have to do it in a real way, though, right? The last administration had, you know, Ivanka would go and take a picture and say, we're going to do skills retraining. And the Obama administration also had it. We actually have to do less branding and more doing. But without a doubt, yes. Those companies have gotten to build and thrive in the greatest country in the world. And now our country is in need. It's time for them to step up. I mean, you guys just talked about the Federal Reserve. They had a meeting yesterday. It was, I think it was on page six of the Wall Street Journal today. To your point, everyone just assumes they're going to keep pumping money. They're going to maintain $120 billion a month. They'll do whatever it takes. And I like Janet Yellen, but she's obviously in a tough spot. Question is, and you're really in touch with the political landscape. You know, the debt's going to be approaching 28 to 30 trillion here by year end, I'm sure. The Republicans will turn around and say, "Upsie, you know, look what you're doing. We all know it's that's not the case. How are we going to get through this? All the stuff that you're talking about that you want to do, and I'm totally with you on all that should happen. How is this even going to be possible in your in your what what do we need to do to make that possible? I, I don't know, but I know that not doing it costs us more. So here's an example. In Biden's stimulus plan, one of the first things in there is the American Family Act. The American Family Act takes the child tax credit and actually makes it refundable, which means you've got 24 million kids in this country whose families should be eligible to get that $2,000 per kid, except their parents don't make enough money to even file taxes. So instead, they're going to make that child tax credit that those families are eligible to have and make it like a direct payment, make it refundable. They're also going to increase it to $3,000. They do that, you're going to cut child poverty in this country by 40%. Every single year, it costs our government almost a trillion dollars to deal with children in poverty as part of our economy. So I, I, I feel you, I hear you, I agree with you. Like, what are we going to do about this deficit problem? I agree. But unless we make structural changes, not doing anything costs us more, right? Our public school systems are failing. Yes. If you want people to improve their socioeconomic status, the best way you're going to do that is in a good education. 
It's amazing, Steph. In the final few minutes we have left, you go from Credit Suisse, and again, I just like saying that, to to probably one of the most popular people on cable news television. And I mean that sincerely. Your voice is resonating like few voices are right now, because I think you speak to people in a way that they completely understand and admire. Uh, So I want to hear, what do you want to use your platform for in this current environment? And then my last question is, What's the obsession with Halloween? Because for you, it starts in like July. Can you bring us down that rabbit hole? I will give you that in a second. But for me, you know, when I left, thank you for being so kind. When I left Bloomberg TV to come to NBC, Mike Bloomberg said to me, you are going to be a failure in cable news, not finance news. And I said, why, why, why do you think that? And he said, well, in cable, only the extremes succeed. Really far to the right, really far to the left. You're in the middle. No one's going to care. And I said, well, Mike, you're in the middle. How did you become mayor of New York? And he said, mm, I was running against a loser and I put 75 million of my own dollars in. And I was like, well, I can't match that. But I think, and I don't know if it'll work out for me for the next few years, but I have this naive feeling that I don't think we're that different. I think everyone out there wants three things. I think they want to be financially secure, physically safe, socially free. And if everything I make If everything I do is aimed to try to help people get better and smarter, then I'll be successful at doing it. And if it doesn't work and people don't want to see it, then that's okay. I'll go home. But I'm sure I'll screw up or I do screw up all the time, but I'm not going to fit anybody's bill in terms of, I I think I'm going to disappoint people this year because I definitely don't subscribe to any sort of ideology. I want the world I'm giving my kids and you're giving your kids to be better than the one we got. I'm worried that's not happening right now, but I think that there is a a universe out there that wants to consume media that makes them, helps them get better and smarter. And I want to be part of that group that does it. And Halloween? I'll tell you my number one reason I love Halloween. I love costumes. And I love costumes because when I go to a party, I have zero interest in asking you where you grow up, what you do for a living, what your wife is interested in, what if she has any food allergies. But when people have a costume on, when somebody puts on a mustache or a sombrero, they just let their freak flag fly and I'm into it. They are funny. They are different. They're just, they let themselves go. And I think it's awesome. And I just love costumes. And Halloween is is the perfect holiday to celebrate it. I'd wear a costume every week if I could. People are going to be dressed up as Robin Hood, I think, for Halloween guy. If I'm going to guess what the number one costume is going to be, but I'm not sure. Or 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 Little John, yeah. or you know, any <laughs> yes. of those cats for sure. Exactly. But yes. listen, Stephanie, this has been amazing. I, listen, I want to thank you on behalf of Dan and Danny. I mean, we could do this for another hour, and we're definitely going to have you back. But I want to thank you, Stephanie Rule, for going off the tape with us. You can find Stephanie on MSNBC pretty much all day. You can see her on the Today Show every once in a while. She's all across the dial. She's also on Twitter. S rule. You should absolutely follow her. Thank you, Stephanie. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Be good. So that's it, folks. That's on the tape. Danny Moses, Guy Adami, Dan Nathan. You can see us on Twitter at Guy Adami, at Risk Reversal, at DMoses34. You can catch our podcast on Twitter at On The Tape Pod. Get us on the Apple iPad. The, what's that, Dan? The, the I, something store, the Apple store, one of those things. <laughs> Any... In any one of the podcast stores. In any one of the podcast stores. Dan Nathan, Danny Moses, thanks. We'll talk to you again next week. (laughs) 